Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. May God bless the reading of his word to us this evening. Have you ever heard of the marshmallow test? It's one of the most famous psychological experiments ever conducted. In the 1960s, Stanford psychologist Walter Mischel developed the experiment to measure the ability of preschoolers to delay gratification. Here's how it goes. A child is brought into a room, offered a marshmallow by a researcher. The researcher then says, I have to leave the room. You can eat the marshmallow now, but if you wait until I get back, I'll give you two marshmallows instead of one. The researcher then leaves the room for 15 or 20 minutes while the child wrestles whether or not to delay gratification. Some ate the first marshmallow. Others waited and got two. Mitchell and his colleagues followed up with the participants of the studies years later. They found that those children who delayed gratification ranked significantly higher in cognitive ability and stress management. They even had higher SAT scores. Many researchers have conducted version of the tests in the years since Mitchell had his original experiment. One interesting wrinkle was factoring in the stability of the environment, particularly the trustworthiness of the researcher. In one experiment, children were placed in a room and given an art project to do. They were presented with a set of old used crayons, but told that if they waited until the researcher returned, they would receive a new, much larger set. The researcher returned after a few minutes, sometimes with a new set of crayons, sometimes not. Some were trustworthy, some were not. Then the children were given the marshmallow test. The children who did receive the new set of crayons from the researcher performed much better on the marshmallow test than those who did not. The conclusion was that an unstable environment affects the ability to delay gratification. In this case, a trustworthy researcher aided the ability to delay gratification. Our passage this evening contains a test with eternal consequences. The stakes are much higher than just an extra marshmallow. Eternal life is on the line. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, Jesus reveals that trust in him is the gateway to everlasting life. First, we see an honest question. Second, we see an honest answer. And third, we see a tragic conclusion. So first, an honest question, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Mark is a great storyteller. 
And he reminds the reader where this story is going. Every paragraph in his gospel advances the plot toward the climax, the cross. Here he reiterates that Jesus is on a journey. This word is also rendered way or road, as it is in verse 32 of chapter 10. This is the road to the cross. The cloud of death looms over all that Jesus says and does in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is not writing a memoir. This is not just an interesting interaction that Jesus has with this man on the road. Mark reminds us that we must view this through the lens of the cross. Now, everything this man does is unusual. He runs up to Jesus. The only other time we see this kind of running in Mark is chapter 9, verse 15, when a crowd runs up to Jesus. So this is an unconventional way to approach him. He also falls on his knees. This is not typical. A leper kneels before Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and says, If you will, you can make me clean. This man here is not looking for healing. He's looking for answers. Mark, of course, leaves out everything that is not absolutely necessary. Sometimes we wish Mark would give us a little more information on what happens. Matthew tells us, That the man is young, Matthew 19. Luke tells us that he's a ruler in Luke chapter 18. So he has come to be known as the rich young ruler. So this powerful, wealthy young man comes running up to Jesus and falls at his feet. This is definitely an unusual encounter. It gets more unusual when he speaks. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we see Jesus called teacher quite often, but never good teacher. In fact, this is the only recorded use of that title in all of the literature from the ancient world. We don't see this used again until writings from the fourth century. Why would he address Jesus this way? It could be ostentatious, a flowery sort of flattery from a man who moves in elite circles that are loaded with flattery. But he seems sincere. He's not trying to use Jesus for anything. After all, what can Jesus give him in terms of material things or status in the community? Jesus is an itinerant teacher from Galilee. This man is rich and powerful. He's not going to make a spectacle of himself by running and kneeling in front of Jesus if he's insincere. He has his reputation to lose and nothing to gain. This man probably just doesn't know what to say to Jesus. He certainly knows that Jesus is not a typical teacher of the day. He's unlike anyone he's ever encountered before. So just to call him teacher, like all the other teachers, seems insufficient. So he calls him good teacher. The man asks an honest question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting that he uses the word inherit for eternal life. This word is typically used for God blessing Israel with the promised land. Psalm 25, who is the man who fears the Lord? Whom will he instruct in the way that he should choose? His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Psalm 37, evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This man knows that obedience to God leads to an inheritance. But rather than the inheritance of the promised land, this man is looking to inherit eternal life. 
This man has all the money he needs. He's rich. He has all the power he needs. He's a ruler. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin. Even though he's a young man, he knows that being rich and powerful is not enough. So he asks the big question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows that his wealth and power will pass away. And he needs something everlasting. The rich young ruler's question is the question for all of us. Even for those like us who aren't rich and powerful. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Everyone has to ask this question at some point in life. Now, some say he's misguided for saying, what must I do? Revealing that eternal life depends upon his own efforts. But there seems to be no difference than the question to Peter when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Or the Philippian jailer, Acts 16. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. So the rich young ruler's question seems to be no different than these. It seems to be an honest question. And now we see an honest response. Verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is nonplussed by this man running up to him, falling at his feet. No doubt he can tell by the way the man is dressed that he's wealthy. Something might clue him in that the man is a powerful ruler, but Jesus doesn't seem to be the least bit affected by this unusual encounter. So he asks a question in return. And the emphasis is on me. Why do you call me good? Of all the other teachers in Israel, why single out Jesus as good? He reminds the man that no one is good except God alone. Now, it's not entirely clear what exactly Jesus is doing with this response. There are a few possibilities. He could be questioning the man's sincerity. Why do you call me good? You don't really believe that. You're just setting me up with smooth talk and flattery. That's one possibility. Or he could be pressing the man to acknowledge his divinity, as in, no one is good but God alone. You are right to call me good because I am God. Do you realize that? Do you realize what you're saying? Don't call me good unless you recognize my divinity. So that's another possibility. Or, and I think this is the case, Jesus is redefining this man's definition of good. This man is speaking in human terms. He has a human standard of goodness. He calls Jesus good teacher because he thinks that Jesus is merely an exceptional man. He doesn't recognize Jesus' divinity, but he does recognize Jesus' unprecedented level of human goodness. Of all the human teachers that this man knows, Jesus is the most good. This is how most people talk. There's a human understanding of goodness. In the past, people would say, Mother Teresa is the highest standard of human goodness and Hitler's on the bottom. Everyone falls somewhere in between. That doesn't really work now. I think Mother Teresa has been canceled. Now everyone is literally Hitler, so our standard of human goodness is kind of confusing these days. But in the past, we would hear people say, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm a pretty good person. It's a human standard of goodness. 
Jesus obliterates this man's understanding of goodness by identifying God as the standard. No longer is goodness measured on a human scale. A person is not considered good in relation to other fallen human beings. Jesus reveals that true goodness is divine perfection. This is the standard, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. True goodness means keeping the law perfectly. And anyone who doesn't measure up to that standard is condemned. Jesus is setting this man up. He's redefining goodness according to God's standards because he's about to crush him with the law. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus here lists most of the second table of the Ten Commandments. Typically, of course, we call the first four commandments the first table of the law, the second six as the second table. First table, of course, primarily deals with man's relationship to God. Second table primarily covers man's relationship to his neighbor. And Jesus has an interesting order here. He names the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments, pretty straightforward. Then he says, do not defraud, followed by the fifth commandment. Most likely, these last two are the biggest stumbling blocks for this man. Why does Jesus list fraud and not the 10th commandment? Do not covet. There are many possible explanations for this. It seems to me the most plausible reason is that Jesus sees defrauding someone as the practical outcome of coveting, and it's also a common temptation for rich, powerful men. Sometimes rich, powerful men want what the other man has, so they swindle him out of it. So fraud is kind of halfway between coveting and outright theft could be a particular temptation for this man. It's also interesting that Jesus concludes his list with the fifth commandment. He might be tempted in the same way as the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So Jesus condemns the Pharisees for elevating the traditions of men over the word of God as they dishonored their fathers and mothers. Also, we know the fifth commandment, is the only one with the promise of long life, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So Jesus here is directly connecting obedience with the blessing of eternal life as further proof that this man must be perfect to earn that inheritance. Matthew 19, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now this seems awfully legalistic. Why doesn't Jesus tell him what he said in Mark chapter 1? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why does he keep telling him to keep the law? Because keeping the law is the path to eternal life. Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is not theoretical. Eternal life is the reward for fulfilling God's law. 
And it harkens back to the covenant of works that God made with Adam. Had Adam been obedient to God's law, he would have merited eternal life. Obedience results in life. Now, of course, we know Adam failed, resulting in death. But that demand for perfect obedience still stands. So all those in Adam are still required to fulfill the righteous requirement. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Obedience still results in life. The problem, though, is since the fall, no son of Adam is capable of obedience. So we all stand condemned in Adam, our covenant head. We bear his guilt. We have inherited his corrupt human nature, and so we do nothing but sin. There is no way out of this condition through our own effort. Sadly, though, this man is unaware of his condition. Now we see the tragic conclusion. Verse 20, he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. This is the record scratch moment from an 80s movie. What what did he just say? Did I hear this right? The man doesn't say, I know the law. Or I'm aware of the law. He says, I have kept the law. This man is lost. He clearly missed Jesus' point in redefining goodness. He certainly doesn't hold himself to God's standard of perfection. He doesn't comprehend that keeping the law involves perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. He actually thinks that he keeps the law humanly speaking. He's probably the most moral person that he knows. He's faithful in synagogue worship. He might even participate in the service in the synagogue. He's probably known in the community as a particularly righteous man. Everyone would look up to him not only for his wealth and power, but for his morality. And so he sees himself as a righteous man, and others do too. He probably sounds a lot like Paul describing his days as a Pharisee, Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. According to human standards, the rich young ruler and pre-Christian Paul were blameless. But Paul goes on to say that all his human achievements were rubbish, worthless compared to knowing Christ. The rich young ruler sadly doesn't have that realization. Even if he grades himself on a curve and convinces himself that he keeps the law by not committing the outward sin, don't murder, don't steal, and so forth, what about the sin of the heart? Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says even if we avoid committing the physical act, we can still be guilty of violating the law in our heart. So surely this man has been angry with someone, but apparently he convinces himself otherwise. Not only that, but even if he avoids committing the outward act, He cannot give himself a free pass on fulfilling the positive aspects of the law. Each commandment has a negative aspect, of course. Don't do this. And usually what's an unspoken positive aspect. Do this instead. 
We see this in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 107. It is it enough that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, these are sins of the heart. God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, to do good even to our enemies. So we see these positive aspects of the law. Don't murder outwardly or inwardly. Instead, promote life. Don't harm your neighbor, but instead love your neighbor. Every negative command has this positive aspect as well. So even if this man has avoided the outward acts, even if he thinks he has avoided the inner sins of the heart, there's no way he can say he's kept all the positive aspects of the law. But somehow he convinces himself. That's how blinding sin can be. This man truly is in bondage to sin. Jesus then cuts to the heart, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus looks at him and loves him. A look of compassion, sympathy. Jesus is grieved that this man is enslaved in sin and he doesn't even know it. He's on a path of destruction, and Jesus can see it, but this man is utterly oblivious. Jesus loves him as one made in the image of God. Jesus took on flesh, becoming true man to save men like him. But this man has a heart of stone. He can't recognize Jesus' love for him. Jesus' love here is not an inner emotion, but an overt action. He loves the man by telling him the truth. There's lots of talk of love in our culture today, even in our churches, that lies to people. You don't need to repent of your sin. God loves you just the way you are. This is not love. Telling the truth, no matter what it costs us, is truly love. So Jesus loves him, and he shows it by putting his finger on the nerve of this man's self-righteousness. You think you keep the law in every way, outwardly and inwardly, negatively and positively? Well, here's a positive aspect of the law that you lack. Give it all up and follow me. This is a twofold command. First, sell everything. Give it to the poor. Give up everything. Everything you trust in, everything you think provides security in your life, Everything that gives you status in the community. Clear the slate. Become an empty vessel. Lose yourself. Put yourself to death. And come follow me. Divest yourself of everything that you think is valuable and give yourself to me wholly in body and soul. He could have said, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he's saying. Put your old life to death. Everything that you thought mattered, your wealth, your power, your self-righteousness, and find life in me. The man thinks that he's righteous. He thinks he keeps the law, so Jesus destroys him with the law. Jesus cuts through his self-righteousness, and he shows him his most glaring violation of the law, greed. This man should collapse on the ground and say, Woe is me, for I am ruined, as Isaiah did. Instead, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. Disheartened is too soft for this word. This man is wrecked. The word is used for a storm in Matthew 16. In the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. That's the word. The man couldn't conceal the explosion of emotion in his heart. No doubt the look on his face was a window to the turmoil of his soul. And he leaves in sorrow. It's the marshmallow test on a grand scale. Keep what you have now and get nothing more. Or... Give up what you have, which really isn't much anything anyway, and get everything. Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus called the man to give up his wealth, which was passing away, in order to inherit eternal life. And this man had the easiest version of the marshmallow test because the one promising the reward is the most trustworthy person in history. You can trust anyone to come through with a promise. It's Jesus. The man knows that Jesus is different. He calls him good teacher. He comes to Jesus looking for an answer to the most important question in life. He cares what Jesus has to say. That's why he went away sorrowful. The man genuinely cared what Jesus said. But he valued his possessions more. The king promised him treasure in heaven, but the man refused to hear God's word and inherit eternal life. It's a tragic conclusion. Could it have gone differently? Could the man have repented and believed? Maybe it's time for a reboot of the rich young ruler. We have all these movie reboots, superheroes. I think we're on our fifth Batman these days. How about a rich young ruler reboot, but this time the Holy Spirit opens the man's heart. That makes all the difference. The only reason that some come to faith and some do not is the Holy Spirit. It's not that believers are smarter than unbelievers or more moral or anything else within them. The only difference is that the Holy Spirit makes some alive in Christ and he creates faith in their heart. That's it. The only thing that separates believers from unbelievers is the work of the Spirit. So how might the rich young ruler 2.0 go Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then the man could say, I know the law, but I can't keep it. I tried. I fail again and again. I know that obedience leads to blessing, but I am far from obedient. Jesus could say, repent and believe in me. You can't keep the law, but I can. I keep the law on your behalf. And I bear your punishment for failing to keep the law by dying for you. Take up your cross and follow me. And the man would go away rejoicing, for Jesus has the words of eternal life. Let us pray. Almighty God, graciously grant that your word which we have heard may be inscribed inwardly on our hearts. As we receive your word meekly with pure affection, may our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness, diligently following your commandments. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.